Is this better? <laughs> so you don't need me to repeat everything then, I guess. Pray for Dave and the team. That's good. Um, I want to thank and just uh, impressed by our young people who sang today. Jenny does a great job with them, and, and they did a good job. I love the dance moves. As always, our worship team does a, just a great job. Let's give them another round of applause. God is with them and in their ministry. Um, a little bit about myself. I am a native Jessamine Countyan. And um, I've lived 52 of my 56 years of life here. I know you cannot believe that I'm 56 years old because you're thinking closer to 70, right? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, my mother had eight children, and so uh, we grew up poor. And I don't mean the kind of poor where people said, well, we were poor, but we never knew it. Oh, we knew it. <laughs> we, we certainly knew it. But my mother, every Sunday would gather up all the children and take us to church, and on Wednesday nights as well, and on vacation Bible school. She prayed with us. She taught us the value of loving Christ, what he had to offer us, and what we had to offer him in our own ministries, our own callings. My dad taught us to work hard, to be honest. He was a man of integrity. So although we didn't have all the bells and whistles and great things some of my friends had, Ataris, that's a video game system for you younger guys. <laughs> we had a legacy of faith, and that is so important. And I'm so thankful that we we're able not only to have a fun, loving, and happy life, but also a life centered around Christ. My prayer today for you is that you open your eyes, ears, and hearts to God's word so that you can clearly see the direction he has for your life, so that you can hear what your calling is, what his plans are for you, and that you open your hearts to his love and grace. Today I'm going to be talking to you about why we try to fit in the crowd when we can stand out for Christ. As Christians, we must choose daily to follow God's will in our lives, to stand in faith, stand in strength, and also stand to glorify God. Our focus scripture is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It's one of my favorites. Love it. Actually, I'll share with you. I've got it tattooed right there. I mean, I've got it tattooed right there. That's better. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Not from yourselves. Not by works. It is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. He gave us our salvation. We can do nothing to earn that so that no man can boast. For we are his masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus to do the good things he planned for us long ago. Those three little sentences have so much power, truth, and guidance for our lives. And I'm going to focus on those, and you'll hear them repeated as I go through the sermon but let me give you a little background lesson. I'm a teacher first. That means I'm a boring preacher. I'm one <laughs> who, if I had the opportunity, I would have a whiteboard and probably seven or eight bullet points on the screen for you. But I, I will keep this part brief. Background lesson is um, God's will is perfect. It is holy. 
It's timeless, it's unchangeable, and at times, we don't understand it. We don't understand his will for our lives. That's why we constantly ask, why am I even here on this earth? Lord, what is your will for me? What should I be doing? Well, the first part is simple. All of us should obey his perfect will to understand that we need to follow his word. We must obey what's in the Bible. And we give him glory, honor, and praise through the way that we live, not only in words, but in action as well. And God's, God's will falls into two general categories. We have his general will, and that's for everyone. I've got to really, I use my hands a lot, so I've got to work this mic. Um, his general will is for everyone, and we find that in the Bible. Those are the guiding scriptures for our lives. It teaches us what to do every single day. And the second part of his will is a specific will. Specific will is for each individual. God has a calling. He has a plan for our lives. And that's what we have to seek out as Christians. As we mature, we should be doing the work of the Lord. And so how do we do that? How do we find his will? Well, we study his word. We learn about him. We pray. We communicate with him. And then we seek his will for our lives. Seeking his will can be very complex and have several steps. But as we seek his will, we might examine, okay, God, what gifts have you given me? What can I use for your glory? You may find someone who's a mature Christian and ask them, what do you think God's will is for my life? Will you pray with me about that? And, of course, seek it in his word Proverbs states, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. He determines our steps and life's direction through his will. So everything that we do should be based upon the will of God. And there are three manifestations, I'm about to wrap the lesson up, or demonstrations of his will. There's the decretive, the perceptive, and the permissive will of God. And they, they're actually pretty easy to understand. The decretive will of God is when he basically makes something or causes something to happen, causes something to be. He decrees it. In Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. And there was. He decreed it. He caused it to happen. The preceptive will is his published law. That's the Bible. Part of the Bible is the Ten Commandments. A precept is simply a law where he says, perhaps, do not lie, do not steal. We're to follow that. And lastly, the permissive will of God. That's where he permits us to sin. He allows sin to occur in the world and in our lives because he loves us. Now, that's strange to hear. God allows sin. But do know, that is not part of his perfect will for us. He allows us to choose. We choose to love him and follow his will, or we choose not. Dave spoke about that a couple of weeks ago, and it was very poignant that God loves us. That's why he gives us free will. Let's look at um, Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. 
and to our God, for he will freely pardon. We've got to turn from our wicked ways, our unrighteous ways. We've got to stand in faith. Once you accept Jesus as your Savior and you're born again, our goal is ultimately to glorify him. And we do that by standing in faith. That's our first point. And standing in faith sometimes is the impetus or motivation to question our lives, to do things that aren't necessarily in God's will. It's difficult to stand in faith. Everyone wants to be liked, right? Thank you. Well, I don't like you either, all right? <laughs> Take a quick water break here. We want to be liked. We don't want to be seen as different or not fit in the crowd. Because today, unfortunately, with the way the world is changing, how woke we are, and actually that's being asleep if you're woke, how woke we are, you're looked down upon as being a Christian. So it does take strength. It takes prayer to stand up in your faith. Remember the first, first sentence in our scripture, our focus scripture, Ephesians 2.8. For it is by Christ that you have been saved through faith. Okay? We've got to believe in the Savior. You know, we all have our salvation story. And we understand that salvation really is an ongoing. It's something that occurs over time. I remember my salvation story. Somehow, I think my mom wanted a break to sort of fetter some of the kids out. She sent me to a week-long youth camp. It was a church camp. And I still remember to this day how the preacher had talked about how we need to give our lives to Jesus. I remember the song. I remember the provenient grace. And that's his grace that comes to us first. That's his grace that kills the soul of our hearts to prepare to accept him. And the heaviness, my goodness, my heart was pounding, pounding out of my chest. I remember crying. Okay, I was a 13-year-old boy with other 13 to 15-year-old boys crying. And I gave my life to Christ. And like many of you, I prayed a simple prayer. I said, God, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I know that you are the son of God. You lived among us. You died and you rose again to forgive me of my sins. I repent of them. And at that point, I just felt such a huge relief and change in my life until that word repent came back. To repent is ongoing. Repentance is something that, um, remember this, it's a feature of your whole life. Not an action of a single moment. Repentance is a feature of your life, not an action of a single moment. So when I became born again and repented, that didn't mean I wasn't going to be tempted. That didn't mean that my free will was gone and I was part of this heavenly host of God. I was a saved person. It meant that I would still have the temptations and I would still have the choices in my free will. And so we, as Christians, have to remember, we are in this world, but we are not of it. And for some of you, that's difficult to understand. But when I say the world, I mean people without Christ. People 
without the moral drive and the will of God directing them. People who simply don't care about God, don't care to seek his will. Remember, this is not our home. This isn't our home for eternity. It's just a moment in time. And during this brief amount of time, God will guide us throughout our lives. He commands us in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When I think of repentance, I think of the renewing of my mind, okay? Our actions come from our thoughts. When I have bad thoughts and I'm tempted by them, I usually act on them. And that's terrible, it's a sin. The Holy Spirit speaks to me loudly and says, no, don't do that. Don't do that at all. We are transformed. That means we are to stand out from the crowd. I was going to have a picture of a large crowd there. There it is. All righty. All right. When you look at this crowd, there are, it's a typical large city, crosswalk, I don't know, 200 people or so there. Okay, Peer, our Pew Research tells us through all of their work that approximately 65% of all Americans profess to be Christians. Okay, 65% of 200, don't correct my math, I would say that's about 130. So there are 130 Christians in that picture. Can you pick them out? Oh, that fellow in the brown coat looks pretty holy. No, you can't. You cannot pick them out. There are so many of us who are in that crowd. We don't stand out at all. We choose to live our lives and exercise our lives in practical atheism every day. And I know that sounds harsh. Don't call me an atheist, Dal. But we do. Practical atheism is when you profess to be a Christian, but you live as if there is no God. And that's a terrible way to live. When we look at someone who is an atheist, this person right here, versus someone who professes to be a Christian, but they don't act on it. The atheist may be a very kind person, a very giving person, someone who puts others before himself, someone who uh, shows love in everyday, everyday actions. And the professing Christian does the exact same thing. But how are they different? How do they stand out? How does this person step out of the crowd? They don't. Or maybe they do. No, <laughs> they don't stand out at all. And so someone who believes or acts as if there is no God, Psalms 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It is foolish. We are betting our lives and eternity on it. Proverbs says, fools despise wisdom. So we have to look at this as, a, an example would be the rich young ruler. You all have heard the story. This very wealthy man, young man, came to Jesus. And he said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, follow the commands. Do not lie, do not steal, etc." He rolled through the commandments. And the young man said, well, I followed those since my youth. Probably smiled, puffed out his chest some, 
or in my case, my belly. Um, and what happened at that point? Jesus knew his heart. He knew the man was wealthy. And a man asked, is there anything else I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, okay, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Everything you have and give it to the poor. And you know, that man walked away dejected. He knew that he could not give his whole to God. And let me tell you, Jesus does not bargain with us. He wants all of our hearts, all of our lives, because if we don't, how are we different from anyone else in the crowd? We've got to either follow the crowd or stand out from the crowd. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Ralph Waldo. He is the tallest man in recorded history. The tallest man. He certainly stands out, right? Okay. But he stands out in stature. The good news is that he is a Christian. He has been a Christian all of his life. He lived to be 22, 23 years old. He was involved in church youth groups. He was involved in adult ministry. He talked about his faith quite often. And so he was someone who stood out. And we know that one of the greatest compliments you can receive as a Christian is that you're different. We are to be uh, distinct and different um, from the crowd. Are you okay, Michelle? Okay. You can sit down, you know. Okay. All right. I love social experiments, and this is one. Go ahead and sit down. <laughs> you know, I've noticed that as I was up here preaching, every eye was either on me or the screens or, um, you know, the fellow in the back, his eyes were closed. He's been sleeping for a while. I guess he needs his rest. But as soon as Michelle stood up, a few at a time, I started to turn on her. Everyone started looking at her. And I'm sure you began wondering and asking, why is she standing up? This isn't when we stand up. We stand up when the last song is played, right? That's when we all stand up. You probably wondered, what's different about her? Or you might have said, hmm, she's weird. Okay, that's strange. The beautiful thing about that is when we stand up, there are two ways to view it. Number one would be as a witness. And the second is an excuse to conform to the crowd. As Christians, we're supposed to stand up. And the great thing about it is when we do, when we stand up for our faith, eyes turn, eyes turn toward us. And we tend to look around and see, all right, here's an opportunity. You can witness to people about why you stand up, why you are different, why you're weird in some of their eyes. It's a great opportunity to witness. It's a great opportunity to speak about what God's done in your life. The other way is a sad way. Some people can look at that as the reason that they conform, okay? They'll say, well, I don't want to stand up. I don't want to be seen as different. I don't like when I'm the center of attention. Okay, I don't want to be weird or different. But God wants you to be. If you have faith, 
pray so that you have faith and strength to stand up for him as you go. Now, King Solomon was different. He was a very different king. He's one that we remember more than probably any king of Israel. Solomon stood in faith. He was going to be the successor to his father, King David. Now, King David had 19 sons, but he wasn't poor. (laughs) He had 19 sons that we know of. There are others listed in the Bible that we might be unaware of. But Solomon stood out not only to his father, the king, but also to God because God had deigned him. He had pointed him out and appointed him as the future king of Israel. One way that David, or excuse me, Solomon was different is that when he prayed to God, when he knew he was going to take the throne and be the new king of Israel, he didn't pray for wealth. He didn't pray so that he would be able to conquer others and have a great amount of land and power. He had faith in God to help him lead. And what he asked God was, Lord, give me wisdom. And we know Solomon as the wisest king of Israel. When we look at 1 Kings 3, 7 through 12, we can see that play out through his prayer. He says, now, Lord my God, you have made me your servant, king, in place of my father, David. But I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among people. You have chosen a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning or wise heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern the great people of yours? A few things to point out there. How many times did he say servant? Okay. As Christians, that's what we should do first. Serve. Jesus' ministry in his life is a blueprint for what we do. We serve others. He called himself a child. He wasn't a 10-year-old. But he was a child in terms of his strength, his abilities to do things. He said, God, you've got to help me. Give me wisdom. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Okay? If Solomon chose not to have faith in God, not to stand out from the other 19 brothers, where would he be? Okay? That wisdom set him apart. You can stand in strength when you put your faith in God. So let's look at his dad. Let's look at his father for a minute, King David. When you think of David, young David, the shepherd boy, what comes to mind? Goliath, absolutely. Thank you very much. David was just a shepherd boy, and I'll go through this quickly. You know the story. He would bring lunch out to his brothers every day, and the Israelites were in a standoff with the Philistines, ready to battle. They were at war, and there was a giant named Goliath. 
And he stood in front of the line and he said, if any of you all can come and fight me and defeat me, the battle is yours. It's yours. And then he spent, he did this day after day. He spent the rest of the time cursing God. He threw out venomous insults about the God of Israel, our God. David heard that and he was upset. And he said, why isn't anyone going out and closing his mouth? Why isn't anyone standing up? No one did. So he said, God, I will. I have faith in you. I have faith that you will give me the strength to face this giant. And so he scooped up five smooth stones and he went to the giant and said, I'll fight you. Giant, of course, laughed because here's this little shepherd boy against what we know as probably a 10 foot tall, massive warrior. And he, he just laughed at him. And the king said, here, David, put on my armor. Tried to fit him with armor, and it was too big. It it didn't fit him well. He didn't feel that he could fight with that armor on. Because he knew he was already equipped with the full armor of God. He had on the breastplate of righteousness. He had on the belt of truth. He had the helmet of salvation. He knew that God had told him, the battle is mine. This is over. So David took his sling and a stone. Whack! hit Goliath right between the eyes, and down he fell, dead. And next, in further strength, he picked up Goliath's huge, heavy sword and chopped his head off. Okay, we're not talking ninja. He chopped. He probably had to beat it, had blood all over him. He held up the giant's head and said, who's next? You know, the battle is mine because God is behind me. He stood up in such incredible strength. And of course, at that point, all the Philistines turned and ran. And the Israelites were able to ransack and destroy the Philistine army. But you may ask, now wait a minute, five stones. Why did he pick up five stones? Well, he had faith in God more than I've ever had or probably ever will have that he was going to kill Goliath with just one. Those weren't backup stones. If maybe hit him in the knee first, brought him down, then in the head. No, five smooth stones. Because Goliath had four brothers or relatives. That's conjecture right now. But as you read further, you learn about those four brothers. You had Ishbi Benad. You had Saph. You had Goliath of Gath. I guess he ran out of names. And then you had this one. His name's never mentioned. They basically say the giant who had six toes on each foot and five fingers on each hand. His name might have been Phalanges or something. (laughs) I, I don't know. Old six toes, whatever it was. But the battle was the Lord and those other four were afraid and later they all were killed in battle. Another thing you might know about Solomon and David, Solomon was born from sin. His father, King David, had lust. He had a desire to be with Bathsheba. And he had an affair with her. She became pregnant with Solomon. David did not want others to know about that. So he sent her husband into battle and had him killed. That's treacherous. That's an awful thing. You may think, well, (laughs) I haven't done things that bad. I'm pretty good. I've sinned, but boy, I sure haven't done that. Well, in God's eyes, sin is sin. There is no larger sin or lesser sin, and we shouldn't judge people for that. He had sinned. 
And Solomon was a product of that sin. But you know, God uses imperfect people to perform his perfect will. Amen? None of us are perfect. That's the good news, that he still will use us. We're not perfect, but by the grace of God, we can change and become the man or woman he created us to be. David and Solomon stood in faith. They stood in strength, believing that God would provide for their needs throughout their lives. When you look at their examples, we should clearly understand and abide by the second verse of our focus scripture. This is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. Where would David be without faith and strength from God? I tell you, he'd be a little greasy spot on the battlefield. He would have been destroyed. But with God, he was able to succeed. Where would Solomon be if he'd not asked and replied or relied upon God for wisdom? Think about that. Name five kings of ancient Israel. With a stretch, I might be able to. Solomon would not even been remembered, but he's the most remarkable king of Israel because of his faith and trust in God. Our wisdom and strength is insufficient and our works fail us constantly. When you think of times you try to do things on your own strength, you try to stand up for God, we fail. We fail miserably. So to perform and fulfill his specific will, remember his will for each and every one of us, we must do the work of God. God does not hand us a shovel and then expect us to lean on it and pray for a hole. That was funnier than I thought. Let me repeat it. God doesn't hand us a shovel and expect us just to stand there, do nothing, but pray for a hole. How many times in our life do we do that? We just pray. It's not God's will that we lock ourselves in a room or in our house from, away from everyone else. When you think of Jesus' ministry, he was always out and about in the public. Okay, today, yes, there are people who are homebound due to physical disability, uh, other reasons they're not able to go out. But it's amazing what we have now. We have the internet. We have Facebook. That's the only social media I use because I'm old. We have cell phones. We can reach out to people and support them, pray for them. We can share the word of God. We do not have to simply wilt and become a practical atheist in that. Even in his healing, Jesus had people do some form or some way of work. Think about that. The man who was blind, Jesus took mud, put it over his eyes, sorry, and when he did that, he told the man, now, go wash the mud away from your eyes. He healed people and he said, go tell these people. If you remember the handicapped man, the crippled man at the pool at Bethesda, remember every now and then an angel would stir the water and the first person to jump in the pool would be healed. And so Jesus came up to this man and he said, um, why do you not get in the pool? He said, well, I don't have anyone to help me. We're to help each other as well. I don't have anyone to help me. 
So when I am working my way to the pool, someone else always goes in front of me. So Jesus looked at him, and it's pretty cool. He said, take up your mat and walk. He didn't say, you're healed. No. He said, sir, pick up your mat, do something, and then I want you to walk. He always asks us to do something as well. So when we look at what happens next in that scripture, every time I read the Bible, it's amazing. Something new always pops up. And I haven't been able to fully understand why or how that happens other than I need that scripture at this particular moment and God gives it to me. But if you read on further about this crippled man at Bethesda, Jesus comes up to him later. He sees him and he says, oh, it's great seeing you walking. And his next words are impressive. He says, now stop sinning or something worse will happen. Wow, let me tell you about my Jesus, (laughs) okay? He does not bargain with us. He wants all of us. He said, man, I have healed you. Now stop sinning or something else may occur to you. That's relevant to us as well. We've got to choose between two ways, the way of life or the way of death. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We can't fulfill God's will on our own strength. He gives us a strength to do that work, to not stand there and simply pray or stand there and wonder, what should I do? He gives us a strength to start digging. Joshua 1.5 is a beautiful verse that supports this. It says, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. When we're worried about what people will think about us, when, we're, when we worry about we're not going to have the strength to do what God would have us do, just know he's going to be with us just like he was with Moses. Is that not incredible? Yes. It certainly is. You think about that. Moses stood before the entire Egyptian army. He stood before the Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world. And he stood up in faith and strength and said, no, my God will have his way set my people free. Would you be able to do that? Let me tell you, yes. If you have faith and you stand in strength, you can do anything that is in God's will. Jeremiah 1.5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. That's one of those scriptures that sneaks up on you. I set you apart. We were set apart for his work, for his specific will. All of us has different things to do, different ways to witness, different people to approach and talk to them about God. We can only do that because the shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep know the shepherd. When we know him, we know his will. How many times have you, I know I certainly have in my life, felt that God was very distant from me. I couldn't hear. You know how you you sort of hear or you feel that, hey, this is what I should be doing. You read scripture, it supports it. Maybe someone else comes up to you and says, this is what you should be doing. When you can't hear it as well, and it's sort of distant, it's just a faint murmur. What's happening there, typically, I know for me, 
if I take pause and think, have I been reading my Bible regularly? In that case, probably not. Have I been praying, taking time to really pray regularly? No. Have I been to church every day this month? No. I can't hear God as well. I can't hear his voice. Not because he has distanced himself from me. I've walked away from him. I've stepped away further and further and further. So remember, you've got to pray. You've got to be in his word. You've got to seek God's will every single day. And it seems like an obvious thing that, well, if I don't talk to God, if I don't read his word, I'm not going to feel close to him. But how often do we do that? We do that much too often. As I'm getting close to wrapping up, right, Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, the last verse of our focus scripture says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ to do the good works that he planned for us long ago. Isn't that beautiful? That, that's just amazing for me. A masterpiece is a culmination of work. It is an artist's best work. And you are God's masterpiece. I, believe it or not, am God's masterpiece. That was funny, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Okay. When we look at that and when we think about what our holy God has done from creation to now, for him to call us his masterpiece is amazing. God Almighty, the holy and beautiful creator, calls us his masterpiece. He loves us and sees us as a people of great value. Look at Genesis 1-3, for instance. God said, let there be light. And there was light, okay? That was his decretive will. Look a little further. And at each stage of creation, on almost every one of them, he creates the animals, the serpents, everything in the sea. God steps back, he looks at it, and he says, it is good, okay? All the way to the sixth day of creation, the first part of it, he creates all the animals of the earth. And he steps back, looks at it, and says, it is good. Now wait for it. Then he creates man in his image. And when that's complete and he steps back and he looks at us, this is the only time, and it's different from six other times, he says, it is very good. We are very good in his sight. We've been newly created through Christ when we've been born again. We serve Christ in strength and wisdom. I keep repeating that. To live, serve, and glorify God. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen people. We've been set aside a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's special creation that you may declare the praises of him. That's why we are created. Everything we do should declare the praises of God and our thankfulness for salvation. Our words, our works, our deeds, everything should stand out to glorify God. He's called us out of darkness and into wonderful light. Our lives were empty. Our lives were hollow. Our lives were shallow before we gave our lives to God. 
So take a stand today. So every choice you make glorifies God. I think of all the people that I admire in the Bible, all of the people who were great believers in faith and strength throughout Scripture, even contemporary people. Um, one person I, I really admire, went to Asbury College, so the Wesleyan tradition is there, and I learned about John Wesley. He was a great theologian. He was an evangelist. He developed Methodism and the Methodist Church, and on his deathbed, it was interesting for me to learn what he said. He said, I'm getting old, my mind is feeble, and there are only two things I can remember. Number one, I am a great sinner. Number two, Jesus is a great savior, okay? Amen, that is wonderful. We are all great sinners. We are all sinners in the hands of an angry God, okay? He does not bargain with us, he wants all of us. Do you know him? Do you know the Savior? Okay, the shepherd knows his sheep, but do you know his voice? Maybe you aren't saved today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. So my prayer is that you seek God and that you pray with someone here today or maybe just as you leave today to say, you know, I'm tired of living this life. I'm tired of being part of the crowd I'm tired of the way this world is going. I do not want to be a part of it. I want to stand out in faith. I want a promised eternity. Pray today so that you have that. And do not think that, you, that you've sinned too much, okay, because you haven't. When you look at John Wesley, he spent his entire life evangelizing, going from place to place on a horse and having these incredible revivals. What did he call himself? He said, I'm a great sinner. The Apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And some of you, and certainly me, could be known as the emperor of sinners. Okay, my sins are plentiful. I wrote some of them down. I've lied, I've been violent, I've gossiped and judged. I've been unforgiven, prideful, I've been selfish, I've chased money, I've been blinded by hate, I've turned my back on people who needed me. I've hurt others. And I've tried to hurt myself. I have sinned, <clears throat> excuse me, over and over and over, more than anyone would care to count. But thank God I wasn't too lost or broken to be saved by his grace that covers a multitude of sins. It's not because I'm a good person that I got saved. It's because I know that I'm not and that I trust fully that God is. Despite my weaknesses and despicable sins, all of our sins, God's grace and mercy tell us in his word, these are his promises and he doesn't break his promises. He tells us that we are loved, we are accepted, we are redeemed, we are children of God. We are no longer anxious. We have a purpose, we are free, we are forgiven, and we are saved. Amen. I'll not be defined by my bad decisions or sins. I am who he says I am. And I stand with Jesus, not because I'm perfect, but because he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that um, 
People don't listen and remember my meaningless chatter, that they remember your word and they absorb it. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, make it known to them that they are valued, that you gave your life for them so that they might live more fully. Lord, I pray that each of us, as we step out this week into the world, into our jobs, with our families, etc., know that if we step out in faith, God will give us the strength to witness and to live a life of calling that he's given each and every one of us. Father, I pray right now for Dave and the team in India. I pray, Lord, that you just surround them with protection. I pray, Lord, that you just flood them with wisdom, giving them the right words to say to the right people at the right time. Father, I thank you for all you've given us, and I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Have a good day.